welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, episode 28, The King in the North. In approximately 2020 BCE, Montuhotep II, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, had secured his kingdom by conquest, reasserting a single monarchy over the Nile Valley and Delta from Elephantine to Memphis. In episode 27, we visited the funerary monument which Montuhotep commissioned at Deir el-Bahari, a terraced construction of great size and elegance, dedicated to the worship of a king who had successfully restored the divine order to Egypt. Now, Montuhotep's architects and laborers continued their work on the grand funerary temple, slowly expanding and developing it until it became the largest and most complex structure developed since the 5th dynasty. To commemorate his victory over the north, Montuhotep commissioned a series of enormous statues to stand at the front of his temple. Only one survives today, an enormous statue of the king wrapped in the burial shroud of Osiris and wearing the red crown of Lower Egypt. The statue was part of a series, half of which bore the white crown of Upper Egypt, and the other half wearing the crown of the North. The statues were designed as a testament to Montuhotep's successful campaigns, and on a theological level, they served to perpetuate his rule and his splendor in the afterlife. Presenting the king as Osiris linked him with the Lord of Resurrection and gave Montuhotep assurance that he would find peace and plenty in the next world. Another aspect to note is that unlike many statues, this one was designed to stand directly on the earth, rather than on a pedestal. The reason for this is probably connected with the Osiris cult. By placing the feet of the statue directly on the ground, the statue was connected with the regrowth cycle of the soil. When the valley flooded during the inundation, it would be connected with the life-giving waters of the Nile, connecting the king magically with the eternal cycle of resurrection. The king's smiling face reveals his personal sense of self-satisfaction, and also the general artistic emphasis on expressive faces that was popular in Thebes during this period. Like the artwork I discussed last episode, this statue stands apart from the more traditional forms of artistry practiced in the Old Kingdom. Although this traditionalism would reassert itself in the reigns of Montuhotep's successors, at this point in time, the expressive modernism of Thebes reigned supreme. As work progressed on his mortuary temple, Montuhotep naturally turned his attention to the organization and administration of his kingdom. If he were to remain undisputed ruler of the reunited two lands, the country was in need of a shake-up. The king recognized that one of the biggest threats to his sovereignty was the fact that provincial rulers and chieftains held a great deal of semi-autonomous power and authority. Since the collapse of the centralized monarchy 
in the 7th and 8th dynasties, the local overseers had been managing things pretty much on their own terms. Although they generally paid lip service to being royal servants, the first intermediate period had been a time when communities looked after themselves and did not interact with the royal authority to any significant degree. To change this situation, Montuhotep embarked on a large-scale program of administrative reform. To bring the royal household back to the forefront of social and political discourse, he began to reorganize the administrative positions and limit the number of people who held honorary or status-enhancing titles. For example, Montuhotep restricted the number of elite individuals who were allowed to bear the title Iri Pat. This title, generally translated as patrician or honorary elite, was a rare one in the Old Kingdom, when kings had used it to create a kind of gentleman's club of high-ranking servants. During the first intermediate period, the title Iri Pat had proliferated, as local rulers awarded it to themselves to enhance their social status and facilitate their rule. Now that he was in sole control of the kingdom, Montuhotep drastically reduced the number of people who bore the title Iri Pat. This effectively shrunk the social elite, as opposed to the political or administrative elite, from a massive group of unconnected individuals to a very small one centered entirely on the king. It was a quick way to reduce the pretensions of many individuals, excluding them from the higher echelons of a society where status and prestige were immensely important. I imagine that the local leaders who suddenly found themselves deprived of official recognition for their assumed status anyway, must have been incredibly irate. They didn't have much choice, really. It was either accept the situation or rebel against the new ruler. It was a bit of a gamble on Montuhotep's part, but one that had to be made. And he could be confident that many local rulers would play along. After all, the Theban household was absolutely the most powerful group in the kingdom. Any local prince who wanted to challenge the situation had to be sure that he wasn't doing it alone. But so many people had submitted to Montuhotep's power and his army that the opportunities to rebel in any organized fashion were simply non-existent. So even though Montuhotep had gambled when he took legitimate official status away from many individuals, he did so with a fair degree of confidence that it would work. The next step, now that he had centralized status among his entourage and loyal officials, was to make some serious administrative changes to the government itself. When the Thebans conquered the north, defeating the house of Keti, they did so with an army that had been drawn from their own territories. It was organized to meet the requirements of a small kingdom. Likewise, the officials and administrators were experienced in the oversight of a small territory, less than half the total land area of the Nile Valley and Delta. 
Now the Thebans were in control of a region to match that of Pepi II. But their recent history meant they only had the experience to govern a principality, a fraction of what they now controlled. How was Montuhotep going to establish a governing body that could effectively oversee the entire Nile Valley and Delta, when he and his own officials were punching above their weight in an administrative sense? There were two choices open to the king. He could try to reinstate the old kingdom system of administration, which was heavily centralised, or he could develop a new one incorporating the local developments of the first intermediate period. The first option had the advantage of tradition and legitimacy. Since he saw himself as a new founder of the kingdom, it would make sense for Montuhotep to copy the methods used by the legendary rulers like Pepi, Neusere, or Sneferu. Egyptians, as we know, were big on following traditional methods of doing things. Although they weren't opposed to innovation on occasion, mostly they did prefer a slow rate of change. Adopting the Old Kingdom's style of governance would suit that well. The downside was that it perhaps forced society to accommodate itself to a method of rule which hadn't been politically or socially relevant for almost 200 years. The heartland of Memphis was no longer the most vibrant or powerful region of the country. That torch had passed to Thebes, and to the smaller local communities in between the two main cities. So maybe option one wasn't as great as it appeared, after all. The king would be forcing his society back into a political arrangement that it hadn't experienced for a long time. Now option two, on the other hand, was more useful in this regard. If Montuhotep adopted a more decentralized model of governing, allowing the local overseers to manage their own affairs, he could maintain a political confederation that did not require his direct input. In other words, he could take the social situation which had come into play during the first intermediate period and put a king at its head, basically leaving the system itself unaltered. This must have been an incredibly attractive option, one that allowed life to continue as it had for the last two centuries. Montuhotep wouldn't have to force his authority too strongly over the many local princes that held influence in their communities. He could simply accept their loyalty and their tribute. The downside was that he would have little real control over them, and would essentially be facilitating a return to the situation which plagued rulers of the 7th and 8th dynasties. Granted, his own resources were probably sufficient to intimidate the locals, but the kingdom itself would be a house of cards, ready to collapse at any tension. So, two options presented themselves to the king, and neither one was a perfect solution to the needs of the day. Sensibly, Montuhotep decided on a middle path between the two options, a combination of light-handed rule married to a strong central authority and intense connection between the king and his provincial governors. From the second, decentralized option, Montuhotep and his successors 
allowed provincial governors to manage their own communities as they had done for some time. However, to combat the risks of tension or rebellion, Montuhotep replaced the existing governors with individuals loyal to himself. The record of this process is revealed by the tombs of Beni Hassan in Middle Egypt, where officials refer to themselves being placed in office by the king, and how they filled his heart with their loyalty. These governors were placed in charge of towns, but never in a position which gave them total authority over a region. For instance, a governor might be the overseer of a city, or overseer of priests in the city, or overseer of temples in the region, but never all three at once. Doing this kept power in small communities divided between more than one person. A standard method of social control for many militaristic states throughout history. Some of these governors also held responsibility for a larger geographical area, which most likely functioned as a leftover from the first intermediate period, when local rulers could control very large swathes of territory. This geographical authority was gradually reduced by Montuhotep's successors, until in the early 12th dynasty, such wide-reaching power had disappeared entirely. So Montuhotep preserved some of the recent status quo, but in a way that ultimately benefited his own power structure far more than it did the regional overseers. They still had the freedom to work in their communities and do as they needed for their people, but they were loyal to the king because without him, they had no position and no authority. He had put them in their place, and he could take them out of it just as easily. Then, to further strengthen his power, he had divided responsibilities among several different officials within a single community, making it nearly impossible for any one person to gain excessive influence or power. But what about in the court at Thebes? Was Montuhotep going to stand back and allow the system to progress as it had done for a while? Or was he going to reform that as well? This is where the first option, the Old Kingdom option, comes into play. Montuhotep resurrected, if you will, several positions that had been powerful officers in the Old Kingdom, but had slipped away with the absence of a centralized power structure. The first and most important of these was the vizier. The vizier of Egypt served as a kind of prime minister for the kingdom as a whole. A deputy to the king, if you will, someone who could exercise a great deal of authority and influence on behalf of the king without requiring the king himself to give the order. Think of it as a two heads are better than one situation, except one of those heads is a divine king and the other head is an ordinary guy who's been promoted by his ruler. We know of two viziers from the reign of Montuhotep II. The first was a chap named Bebi, who is attested on a small block fragment. It's only his name. Not a lot is known about him. The second vizier is better understood. His name is Dagi, and he first comes to prominence as an overseer of the gateway, the equivalent of a 
Major Domo at the royal palace. When he attained the rank of vizier, his service was evidently of such calibre that Montuhotep actually included his name among the decorative features of the royal mortuary temple under construction at Deir al-Bahari. Furthermore, Dargi was granted the right to commission a magnificent tomb at Thebes, of which some fragmentary paintings and reliefs have survived. My favourite, which you will find posted on the podcast website, is of two of Dargi's sons. This fragment from the tomb has preserved its paint very well, and has beautiful coloration. It is also a good example of that late first intermediate period Theban art style, which is just slightly wrong physical proportions for individuals. The waists of these men are incredibly tapered and slim, and though their heads are back to a relatively normal size, there is still a lingering air of modernity in the artwork. Dagi's work as vizier provided a stable administrative framework for Montuhotep's kingdom, benefiting the king's plans immensely. Along with his general revival of the viziership, Montuhotep also resurrected a bunch of lesser titles, which I won't bore you with here. They're relatively simple things, like high-ranking overseers and treasury officials, people whose responsibilities were necessary in a kingdom whose territory and population had increased exponentially over the course of a few years. As Montuhotep II geared up for a campaign in Nubia, he also made sure that the army of Egypt was under the command of men loyal to him personally. One of these was Horus Hotep, a member of the king's elite bodyguard who was buried in a tomb at Thebes near to many of his contemporaries, including one of the king's wives, Kimsit. Among the objects discovered in or near his tomb was a small sheet of papyrus recording several sets of provisions organised for the soldiers under Horus Hotep's command. According to Herbert Winlock, one of the biggest names in Egyptology of the early and mid-20th century, the document is something like a tax return for the bodyguard, a list of rations and provisions needed for their service. Such items give us small glimpses of the lives led by these individuals. For Horus Hotep, and probably for Montuhotep II as well, the equipping and provisioning of the army was of the utmost importance in this period. You see, the king continued to dominate the north by a combination of military strength and careful political planning. Neither aspect could be ignored. For a man like Horus Hotep, whose career was built on the protection of his king, such concerns were of vital importance. Other documents from the period will give us an even greater sense of the Egyptians' daily life in this period. But time is running out on this episode, and that will have to wait for another day. Horus Hotep, like Dagi the Vizier, served his king well enough to be rewarded with a tomb at Thebes. Part of this service was the successful protection of the king during the enormous campaign into Nubia, which was about to be launched. Thank <laughs> you.